This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. Welcome to this uh, episode of Washed Up Emo Podcast. Uh, today's guest is Amy Fleischer from Fiddler Records. I'm going to mention that's Fiddler. Um, it's it's the it's the it's the late '90s vibe. Uh, you probably know that label because they released the first Dashboard uh, Confessional record, the first Newfound Glory Newfound Glory EP, and. Yes, she's very cutting edge. Um, um, she went on to do many things in the zine, um, in the scene. Um, it's great to have her on the podcast. So thanks, Amy, for being here. Thanks for having me. So South Florida, Miami, 16, you start a fanzine. Like, what was it like? How did you find out those bands? What was that like? Like, 96, I was starting college. You were starting the fanzine. What was what were sort of your thoughts back then diving in? Um. It, pretty much for me, it started because I had a really cool older brother. Um, he was four years older than me. So when I was like 12, he was 16 and he was getting into like going to like he would see, you know, old school punk rock shows and he would take uh, he would bring me shirts back and things like that. And it's basically because of him that I got into music like. I remember sitting in his car and listening to Black Flag and being like, what is this? Like, totally enamored, in love with, like, my cooler big brother that, like, played Nine Inch Nails for me. And I'd be like, do they really have Nine Inch Nails? Like, you have to tell me all about this band. And uh, (laughs) so when, I think when bands in Miami first started really playing out, um, I can't really speak 100% clearly about like the 80s because it's way before my time but there were some local bands but they were more like heavy metal type things and it started pretty much when I think Green Day first started because that's like when people can pinpoint the South Florida music scene like a band called Quit and that was like the first band that people really latched onto and I think just from hearing about it from the cooler kids at school and from my brother, I just put things together and 
I wish I could remember how I got to my first show, but it's something something in there, <laughs> something along those lines. Yeah, maybe it'll come back to you. Maybe. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, the, from the zine and obviously the, you know, the, you know, having, um, people showing you music, um, and going to those shows. And, um, one thing I always thought about back then that I wanted to get your take on is it was overrun with dudes. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I just remember going to shows and like girls had to be tougher. Girls had to be stronger and I was almost scared of them going to these shows, even though it was 95% dudes going to I, – I grew up seeing really small shows in Vermont, and I didn't get uh-huh. to see, like, a giant band until I went to college. And big bands to me were, you know, local bands from New York or Boston that would come up. And so you'd see these girls, and they'd be in the pit, and there'd be, like, two. And I don't know, how, did you feel that you were getting pushed out or, like, why you here? Um, well, I was I was a really small person. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> relatively small, but I don't think I broke a hundred pounds oh, until wow. I was like, you know, 18 years old. But Miami was a really like it was a tough scene. Like there were a lot of hardcore bands, a lot of metal bands, and the punk rock bands like aired on the side of like against all authority, like piss and vinegar, fuck you, cops, and a lot of the girls that were around were tough as nails, like, covered in tattoos, and a lot of the punk girls had, like, they'd be, like, very Betty Page, and, totally have, have, like, creepers and dyed hair, and then, like, hardcore girls would wear, like, super baggy clothes, and wear, like, visors, and I was neither of these things, (laughs) like, um, I was super skinny, like, I wore baggy clothes by default, because it was, what everybody did in the 90s and why did we do that why did we do that i don't know why we did that because i I look oh my god we're so dumb like i look like i was in the jetsons like like skidding across the ground totally you did not see our feet from like 1989 to like 1999 there were no feet anywhere and extra larges all yeah i wore an extra large i wore a men's extra large like i weighed 90 pounds my first Newfound Glory shirt is XL, and I wish it was medium because it's so badass, and it's the first, like, tour, and nope, nope, XL. <laughs> yeah, no, I have a ton of shirts from back then that I still can't bring myself to give away, but they're extra larges, and I hold them up, and it's like, someone would probably come to me and be like, oh my god, were you really fat when you were younger? It's like, no, I was just into music. Like, oh, that that makes total sense. Oh. <laughs> So, so true. yeah, growing up and going to shows, you definitely, like, you know, 99% of the girls were, like, super tough, and, but once you got to know them, they kind of eased up, but you, they had this facade of being super tough, because if you weren't, you'd get pushed around, like, yeah. not in a, like, bad sexual way, but in a, like, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen kind of way, and then- um, yeah, like how did that push you to sort of, did that inspire you to, you know, like you said, you got into, you know, promoting shows and doing that stuff. Did that inspire you to see that? Um, I, re- I really don't know. I mean, like my mentor at that point in my life, who I'd, I didn't even really know she was my mentor, was the owner of like the one all-ages punk rock club. Cheers, in right? Florida. Cheers, yeah. And she was just like, feisty, teeny tiny lesbian and her name was Gay and she was tough as nails. No shit. And yeah, and I, and she kind of like she patrolled the parking lot just like walking a cigarette like 
you know, she walked softly and carried a big stick for sure, but there was no stick to be seen. Um, <laughs> and I think I kind of learned from Gay, like, it's more about an attitude and more about, like, if you want to be somewhere, be somewhere. No one has the right to tell you if you should be there or not. Um, so, yeah, it was it was interesting to see. And something else that was really weird is that a lot of the girls, when I was growing up, a lot of them were like, oh, I'm so-and-so's girlfriend. Like, a lot of them were like, I'm the dude from the band's girlfriend. And, you know, my aforementioned nerdiness and skittiness kind of pre- prevented me from being anybody's girlfriend. Yeah. Um, so I kind of had to, like, fight my way to be there. Like, I can play too, you know. Um, I was very careful to, like, not... Like, shows back then were pretty rough. Like, I don't really know what they are, like, anymore. It's been way too long since I've been to a real show they're tame um yeah yeah like kids would get their teeth knocked out like and i mean maybe that was the impetus for me to like be friends with bands and get to know bands because that way you can kind of hide on stage behind an amp and you can you get the best view of the show um so maybe there was something there that kind of urged me to get closer with bands yeah so if you if if you got into like hippie music you probably wouldn't have gotten into it you would have just gone to the shows you wouldn't have been inspired to sort of get behind the scenes a little bit (laughs) i'm just joking (laughs) yeah i would have been you know just in the drum circle (laughs) which Uh, would have been very possible in florida in the 90s (laughs) yeah i actually have a a video of earth crisis vod and i'm forgetting the last band on vhs from cheers i think if i remember correctly i booked that show no see that the perfect point. So you then started to book shows. Did you just reach out to everybody? I mean, obviously the fanzine helped with meeting labels and, and doing that, but that's such a great, that's such a great leap and being well, do, was, doing your own town. It was, uh, there were a couple of parts that made it just happen. Like Malcolm Gladwell style, like connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing was that cheers was a block from my parents' house. Wow. Like, if you walk out of my parents' neighborhood and cross over US-1, which is, like, the highway, yeah. um, it's it was right there. So I was allowed to go at a young age, and I was allowed to go on school nights because I think my parents figured, like, it's down the street. If something happens, she'll either come home or we'll, we can find her kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I also went to a really special high school. It was called the Mast Academy. It's It's still there. And it was just starting. My brother was actually in the first graduating class. And uh, it was an experimental, or it is an experimental type high school, where in my senior year, we were uh, we could do an inter- internship. And if we did it, we were required to be there like three days a week, like four hours at a time. And something happened where I had a, a zine that was called Fiddler Jones, and I was, you know, sending mail to record labels and I was getting promos and I love the whole thing. Something happened where I brought a bunch of copies of the zine to cheers and gay the owner. She saw it and she was like, she was not in over her head by any means, but she just couldn't tell that she didn't know the difference between lag wagon and 10 foot pole. Yep. So, and she saw, she saw the zine and I think she saw like a little bit of hope, like, wait a minute, this kid can tell me what, which way is up and who deserves what kind of money and how many kids will come and, you know, she was like, you did this on your own. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I do it for fun. And she's like, do you want to come work for me? And I was like, actually, I'll come work for you for free if you sign my papers for school. So 
I started going to Cheers after school and like literally like mopping and sweeping and like back bar backing, which was not too legal at the time. Definitely um, not legal. Definitely not legal. I was like 16, 16 and a half. And um, Gay really like, she showed me the ropes of booking, you know, regardless of what scene. And then she would ask me like, okay, is this band less than Jake any good? And could they play with Hot Water Music because they're both from Gainesville? And you'd be like, yes, they're yes, good. They can. No, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So um, it was really just like, you know, right place, right time, doing the right kind of thing. And I met a great person. That's awesome. Um, how did that, how, how did the first release for, you know, Fiddler come about with Vacant Andes? Was it the same kind of thing? They were, was it, they were opening shows or, um, um met them through the club? I'm, I can't remember the first time that I saw them or met them, but they were this band from, Vacant Andes were from Boca, which was like an hour from Miami. And they were kind of these like weird guys that nobody really know, like some, nobody really knew, like sometimes they would like dress up and wear button down shirts and ties. And we were all like, who are these weird dudes? <laughs> and um, I remember uh, you know, after a while of working at, at Cheers, Gay actually started paying me. She would give me a percentage of the door, and I started having my own nights. It would be like Wednesday night local show, and I really got to know everybody in Miami and in South Florida generally like that way because, like, when you when you control who plays the shows, bands kind of find you. Yeah, you know? without a doubt. Yeah. Um. And I remember seeing the Vacant Andes. God, I wish I knew which was what their first show I saw was. I really can't remember. And I just remember loving them, like instantly falling in love with them. They were a little bit older than me. They were from a different city. And I was like, well, these guys are so cool. And I kept putting them on different shows. And eventually I had saved enough money where it was like, wow, I have like $500. This is crazy. And I also, I had another job in town, so I had saved money from that also. And it was like, well, I book shows and I have this magazine. And there were one or two other independent labels like started also by, they were uh, band guys that had their own labels. And I was like, I could have a, my own label too. Like, I don't, I don't see why not. And um, I remember asking Chris, who is Chris Caraba, who is now Dashboard Confessional, and John Owens, who has been in 37 different Florida bands. He's like the grandfather of South Florida, all things good and drunk um, <laughs> in a good way. Uh, I just remember asking them, like, you know, can I put out a 7-inch for you? And they they just said yes. It was like, yeah, sure. Like, there was no, like, what's your label called and who's going to do it and where do we record? It was like, okay, cool. Now we figure out how to put out a record. That's like, awesome. So um, they were they were my first, and it was, a, it was a pretty intense learning process. Like, we all learned a lot together putting that record out. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, the, obviously from that, <laughs> great, great, great first pick. Um, yeah. <laughs> for that record, I mean, I definitely heard about it. Um, I remember playing it on my college radio show. Um, wow! And because um, it just, you could feel that there was something going on. You could, there was a feel. I, mean, I had a friend that was, you know, living down there that knew that went to shows there, um, mm -hmm. and that you know knew some stuff. And so it was great to 
be I was in school in North Carolina, so it was actually close enough where I saw a lot of the Florida bands come through and that's just a yeah. great thing. I mean, and that leads into sort of, you know, the new new Fun Glory stuff. Um was that the same kind of thing? It was, hey, let's, you know, you probably had a few under your belt and hey, let's uh let's do something for you guys. Obviously, there was anticipation for them based on, you know, Chad and his stuff, but I don't think I don't think I don't think people were expecting it to be that big. It was a it was a different scenario because I had a pretty quick uh like welcome to the world of music with the Bacon Andes and the releases right after that and um you know I knew Chad Chad Gilbert and I were buddies because of Shy Halud and it's kind of like if you grow up in South Florida you cut your teeth on hardcore like yeah. everybody grows up on it you know you probably know more about hardcore than you do about punk rock um you know, granted, they are the same thing to different people, but it just comes out, and I don't know how how it happens, but it did. And um, when I met Chad, it was like Shy Halud was like, "Whoa, they're on this real label. They're on Revelation." <laughs> yeah, Actually, right. They, they were on Crisis, which was like the the Rev subsidiary, like, and it was like, you know, like in scene land, that's like being a, a high school varsity football player. And uh, I remember talking to Chad and being like, I really love Shy Halud because, you know, they put out an EP that's like one of the best three songs EP, three song EPs out there. And um, I was like, I would really love to do something with your band. And he was like, I would love to do something with you too, but I can't with Shy Halud, but I have this pop punk band that I've been wanting to do for a while. And it was really strange how it came together it was really like oh i know this guy and he knows that guy and truthfully they recorded that ep before they had ever even played a show their the ep that i put out for them was their first show and it was sold out at cheers and it was bonanza and you know i think they had so many things going for them they they were all in high school they were all like popular dudes from suburbs of south florida and chad had like legitimate people, you know, all eyes on him because of Shia Halud. And it was like the strangest thing. I just remember seeing them play that first show and like, it just clicked. Like, um, and it's really weird. Like Jordan still hadn't written lyrics for like half the songs. He was like reading off of like notebook paper and their drummer at the time was this guy named Taco Joe and he was a sweetheart, but it just like, it just wasn't gelling, but you could just see like, this, there are great things coming for this band. You could just see it, um, and that was uh, that was my fourth release. So things started to change after that, big time. That's the, that was actually my next question. You're you're you are great at this. Um, you know, <laughs> when did, when did you start to feel things were going so fast? Because I I was hearing about Fiddler, hearing about these records. Um, you know, Lumberjack, Distro. It's like holy shit, Lumberjack. Like things are popping off. Yeah. When did you start going like, oh shit? <laughs> um, I think I said oh shit at every point of everything. So, <laughs> um, well, because Chad was in Shy Halud, I learned a lot um, from him about like what the expectations were of Newfound Glory. Like, okay, you put the CD out for this kid that's like a hardcore superstar what's your distribution? And, you know, my response at that time was, uh, I don't know what's distribution. <laughs> like, 
at that point, I was just driving to the three or four record stores in South Florida, dropping stuff off on consignment and picking stuff up. And I had to learn really quickly, like, what independent distro was. And I started working Lumberjack. I started working with them first. They were the first distributor to call me back, the first distributor to pay me on time. And Dirk and his wife, Emily, were, like, the kindest people to just, like, kind of see that, there was something going on and they were, they were okay with being a part of it. And, uh, at the time having one distributor really wasn't enough because things are really like small still. Like you could go with revelation. You could go with lumberjack. You can go with bottleneck. You could go with Caroline, very rots, like all of these little tiny distros and you'd send, you know, 20 to 100 pieces to them and they'd pay you like six months later but they would actually send you a check and when things started um really selling like for newfound glory it was like i don't really think i knew there was an oh shit moment yet because it really hadn't happened for anyone from our area that like things just worked and you could be a professional touring band like even shy halud only toured when chad was on was, summer break the, like that was crazy about that because i remember seeing them in college and they played raleigh and he literally he had never been up the east coast and i remember mm-hmm. telling him he was going to be playing vermont and i was like oh well here's these people you need to meet and um you know obviously the nicest dude on the planet, I think, in the hardcore. And I love that he still gives shout-outs to the Straight Edge kids at shows. Um, That's I'm always like, I will always go to their show. I will always buy their stuff because he does that. (laughs) He never forgets. But that first time, you could see, like, you know, going up the East Coast and, like, we only have a week and a half before we got to get back. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They were, you know, it. the touring schedules of bands back then were, like, if I can remember correctly, they were much more sporadic and much more like dependent on the seasons. Like, and you had to no... go see it. You had to go. It wasn't like you know, oh, a day to remember is going to be back in six months anyway. No, you had to go. You had to go. You totally had to go. It wasn't like, oh, you know, Cursive's coming, and it was like, oh my God, Cursive's coming. Yeah. They have a new record. They're playing. I might never see them again. And you had to go. It wasn't like <laughs> this like continuous like roller coaster that kept coming around. So I don't know. And I I think the weird thing that I did with the label is like once Newfound Glory started seeing success and like went on an East Coast tour and started playing a lot of shows, I more so turned to like back to Miami. And I was like, there are other bands that I love here that I could do this with too. And so I started putting out more records and I started putting out records for national bands also. And the recipe didn't quite work as well. Like I worked with a band called the agency and I loved the agency so much. I, I still love them to this day. The, the records that I put out with them are like some of my favorite musical recordings, but it just didn't pop the way newfound glory did. And I worked with a band from Pennsylvania called the gray AM and they saw like small little indie emo, whatever successes, but it didn't, have that spark the same way and I felt like well what am I doing wrong that these bands aren't getting big like Newfound Glory is kind of thing and it just you know you can't hit a home run every time and that was that was pretty hard for me to understand at the time and maybe I don't think I really understood it fully until right now Um, but 
the next time I really felt that sort of like huge momentum and success was with Chris Caraba was when I put out the dashboard confessional record. And that was like, that was like the second chance at, Oh shit, wildfire. And by that point I had known because of what had happened with newfound glory. I was like, okay, I have to ride this to where it's going or else I'm going to lose it. And that's when like everything changed, like moved to California started touring with bands like everything kind of took off after that yeah the uh the one other thing i want to talk about we i definitely want to talk about dashboard before that though i mean with saves the day um i didn't i love that you're on the at your funeral release i had no idea that's badass i didn't know i was on that either really <laughs> I, I found that in amoeba in the use section and i was like wait a minute that's me. That's my little hunchback posture and my little ponytail and my crappy gas station jacket. And I guess it was like a B-side release that I, I didn't even know about. But it, that's me. That's me and Eben. Oh, <laughs> like, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, the I just, I mean, I'm a, a huge Saves the Day fan. A lot of people on the podcast know, like, I was friends with Equal Vision and got Can't Slow Down on tape as a demo. Oh, wow. Lost my mind. I wore out the tape obviously saw them and then I got through being cool on tape and wore that out and they were um they actually I convinced the label to let me book them at a pizza place oh um, awesome they played it was literally right before through being cool broke and uh-huh. they they played the show 250 kids um and uh I've I've had instances where I've seen the guys and they've played shows after in North Carolina and every time they're always like who is at the pizza place show and uh, the kids throw it out and it's just that the, another kind of band that I think had that sort of moment and bang and just went and you yeah. obviously got to tour with them what were some of the I mean, what were some of the fun times you guys had with them because that was exciting back then holy shit I mean um, that yeah, was like that a, was... That was like that a was sh- a crazy time. <laughs> yeah, that was like a cannon. I think that might have been like an equivalent to like in our world. That was like the dot com boom. Like yeah. That that little pocket of 1999. Um, what happened was I was touring with Newfound Glory, and at this point, they had decided that my label, that Fiddler, was too small for them, and they needed like you know, label with staff other than my mother and um, actual distribution. And they had signed with drive through records. And that was a big bum out for me because I really wanted to stay with them as long as possible, but they absolutely needed to do what they did to grow. Like they wouldn't be where they were if it wasn't for that move. And, you know, I understood that back then and they were like, we love you and we want to stay with you. Like, will you come on tour with us? And it was like, okay, okay, cool. Like, how do I do that? You know? Um, so I toured with newfound glory and I think it was like late 1998 when I just graduated high school, I was on winter break from college and it was, there was a tour that was newfound glory saves the day. And gosh, I can't even remember who else. Um, but somehow or another I met saves the day and you know, while I felt like a really close kinship with the Newfound Glory guys, there was something with the Saves the Day guys that, like, they felt like family. Like, instantly, like, I felt at home around them, and they felt the same. And after a couple of days of being together, they were like, we don't want you to, like, 
you know, completely ditch Newfound Glory, but we want you to come with us. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to ditch them either, but this feels way better. And so on their next national tour, which was with face-to-face headlining, and Newfound Glory was even on that tour, which is even funnier. So we still were around each other. Um, and Alkaline Trio, that was their first national tour, like, you know, headlining or supporting a major headliner. And that tour was just nuts. Um, I wish I could remember some things that that would be interesting for people to hear about. But I think what sticks out most in my mind right now would be uh, Alkaline Trio was only on like a certain leg of it. And when they dropped off, this little band that nobody had heard of called Sum 41 <laughs> had, and I don't know if it's true or not, but the rumor was that they had bought their way onto the tour, like their label had paid their way in. Um, so we had like, you know, there we had our buddies, like Matt Skiba and Heather, like who was the most awesome person the tour with ever. Like we had these bros. And then one day in Colorado, they were gone. And the next day, these little dudes called Sum 41 popped up and they had spiky hair and they were from Canada and no one knew where they came from. And we just like, we didn't hate them, hate them, but it was like, you know, seriously, like, where did these guys come from and where are our friends? And uh, there was some pretty, pretty serious hazing. I think there was, um, you know, an account of a large you know, foot-long dildo being glued to their van. Oh, you know, amazing. Little things like that. That's fantastic. Um, but, gosh, I can't really remember... No, that's no, that's no, that's that's totally good. I mean, the the, the <laughs> I what I think about. I mean, you saying that that was sort of the dot com. It's funny the the DJ night. Well, it's not funny. Uh-huh. It's it's the DJ night that I've been doing for um a, a, almost a year with a friend of mine in New York. Saves the day is like the number one requested band, and yeah. the sing alongs like this is past uh, month. I had to play the whole I'm Sorry, I'm Leaving EP because people were singing the next note of the next song. Totally. Um, and it's like, I was just kind of like, is there any other genre that this happens? I don't know. Like, I don't know either. And it's <laughs> it's really strange for me because, so I toured with them through, you know, for a while on Through Being Cool. And then by another right place at the right time, I started working at Vagrant and I did A&R on Stay What You Are. So I was like in the studio for that whole process and then around for that being released and the videos and the talk show appearances. And like, I don't really know if that happens to any other scenes or any other bands, but like my my boyfriend and I were going through and like like looking at the old videos because he had, he had uh, never seen Freakish and I was ah. like, oh my gosh, they're with Muppets, it's amazing. Such a good like, video. It came out the same time as Weezer. <laughs> yes, like it was just this like weird. I don't I don't even know how to explain it. And you know it's weird because the lineup of Saves the Day has changed so much. You know, especially in the most recent years and. I can understand why they still play because people just people just love it. People just love that band. Um, yeah. When um, Dan at Equal Vision sent me the Through Being Cool, it was that moment like, I can't believe I'm listening to this right now. Yeah. Like, sh- when Shoulder to the Wheel came on, oh I my mean, gosh. If, I had, if I had text messaging back then, it would have been oh my gosh. instant. Yeah. No, I remember like 
literally being like giddy in the van, like just the idea of please, Dave, just drive. Yeah. And like, oh my God, I'm in the van and like Dave is just driving, which is like surreal. <laughs> like, I, you know, it wasn't quite like Beatlemania, but for me it was like I am on tour with my favorite band on the planet. I Nothing else could go wrong after this. Like this is just the best. That's awesome. That's so yeah. rad. Just for, with the kind of the vagrant year, <laughs> that year's year, um, yeah. we we share that same uh, thing. We both worked um, yeah. at Vagrant um, with Dashboard and, and Swiss Army. Um, um, just so you know, I bought yours. I, I didn't buy the other one. I bought the oh, okay. just, so you know, just so you know. You're one of the, the first few thousand that got it on, <laughs> on the Fiddler tip. Well, I saw him. I mean, he, he played a show with Snapcase. That, I oh, like, yeah. I, I literally ran to the show. It was at Roseland, and it was the most awkward show possible. I was there. I was oh, you totally were there. Sh- oh, awesome. All right. See, I see. I think I remember stuff in there. So, yeah, um, yeah. And it was Snapcase, H2O, and The Explosion, and yep. Chris. Yeah. Yeah. And literally, I was like, first row. Like, it was one of those things where you're young, you leave, you come early, and I was like, yeah. I'm there to see Dashboard, and ran up, and I'm screaming every word. There's all these kids there like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Um. And he must have played some other upstate college. I had. It just. It felt so grassroots to me, and it felt yeah. so honest. And now there's yes, singer songwriters, and you know, and yeah, it's cheesy, and and Chris was emo, and it, I'm like, but it was. It came from such a right place. Yeah. It really. You know, when I first started working with Chris, and we would literally like get in my car and drive around the southeast because. It was just me and him, and we could do it mm-hmm. together, and we, there weren't, like, five members and a bunch of gear and a bunch of merch. Like, I had an old Jeep, and we threw our stuff in the back, and we literally just, like, let's just go to Atlanta and play this show. Okay. Like, it made total sense to us to do back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, when I started to tell people about him, my only point of reference for, like, what he was doing, I would say, do you like the Goo Goo Dolls? And people would be like... Yeah, I like the Goo Goo Dolls. I'd be like, it's kind of like that, but it's one dude. Like, there was nobody else doing that sort of, like, you know, interesting tuning, singer-songwriter, like, and an interesting thing that happened is, like, something that happened really quickly is I think Chris kind of realized that he was about to be, like, under a microscope of every tough guy in the world, like, especially playing with bands like The Explosion, And I remember he went from literally having, like, one and a half little tattoos to, like, having full-sleeve tattoos. And I think it was, you know, and I remember he did it, like, in a couple of weekends. And I remember the guy that did his arms, his name was Janusz. And uh, he kept saying that I had very interesting wanes. Like, he had this crazy accent, and I guess he liked the veins (laughs) on my arm. But, uh, you know, he had, like one little star on his on the inside of his wrist and then of course you have a star of course why wouldn't you have a star why wouldn't you not Um, have a star (laughs) everybody had a star um and he went from having no tattoos to being like little dude with full sleeves and it was like hey uh chris what happened to your arms buddy and you know and that was just it and i think it was his way of like you know, waving the flag of like, you can throw a shoe at my head, but I'm a fucking tough guy. <laughs> um, wow. So yeah, it was, a, cool. it was a really interesting time. 
I mean, there was so much hoopla with that record. I can't believe I used the word hoopla, but um, there was so much, you know, commotion around that and 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 chatter. And I'm just thinking of what what Twitter and Facebook would have been <laughs> going on. Oh about my gosh, back I can't. Then. I can't even imagine. Like, there's so many little things that have changed that if they had been around back then, I don't know what would have happened. Like, um, you know, I grew up on the internet pretty early, like BBSs and AOL and that whole thing. But, you know, things at that time, like, I don't really even think like absolute punk was around really as it was in its heyday back then. I mean, it really but, was, it was like you heard about it from somebody, you traded a mixtape, it was on there, or somebody toured, or my thing was, every band that I got a record for, I looked who they thanked as other bands. Yes, that was the secret. That was like, you know, that's like the secret Zelda password. You look yeah. at who thanked who, and honestly, it was really important when you put out a record like, oh, we have to thank all of these other bands because... You know that they're going to read through it. Yeah, Totally. Um, yeah, it was a really, I don't know, it was a really strange time because I remember the first pressing of the Swiss Army Romance, uh, I pressed a thousand CDs and they sold out in like a month and that was just like all around Florida and the Southeast and I just remember we were sitting and talking and it was like, okay, if every single person that bought a CD has five friends that like the same thing, we could sell 5,000 records. Yeah. And then it was like, you know, we extrapolated that and it was like, oh my God, what if they have 10 friends and we sold 10,000 records? And it was like, you know, all of a sudden this like huge wave of possibility came over us. And it was like, I think it was then I have this like opinion. It's like the powers of tens. Like if you sell a thousand records, you can sell 10,000 records. It's just like the wave just falls over. And I definitely experienced that with Chris firsthand, and it was crazy. Last thing for me on the record, and I'd love to hear your other thoughts about it. I mean, it, I love the record. I still love it. I don't have any shame about it. Um, it literally hit me like a ton of bricks when I heard it. Um, and I was like, okay, this is it. <laughs> yeah. This is this is good. Um, this is this is this is this is honest. Um, and this kid's gonna be <laughs> around for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So um it was it was a little bit um the success of it and whatever you want to call it the I don't even know what it is maybe that's a French saying je ne sais quoi mm-hmm. you know? yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I just said it but it was like it sometimes even had a polarizing effect because sometimes people were like you know a lot of bands that I met on tour with either Newfound Glory or Save the Day I would call them and be like, hey, I'm working with this dude, Chris, and this is his record. Like, can he play, like, three dates? And, like, and that's how the movie life took him out, and that's how Midtown took him out. And sometimes Chris would get bigger faster than the bands that were taking him out, and people got a little, like, touchy about it. It was like, hey, man, we just took you on this tour, and you kind of just took all of our fans. Like, thanks a lot. Like... It was a really weird phenomenon. Yeah, um, I, I, I've, I've felt that with a couple labels I've worked at, the same kind of thing where you have the opening band, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a really weird thing because, like, no one comes out and says it, but the point of being a, in a band and going on tour and putting out records, you want to be a rock star. It doesn't yeah. matter what level rock star you want to be, but it's, like, blatantly saying, like, 
I want people to pay for what I have to say and what I do on stage. And when someone that's newer and younger than you comes and like steals your thunder, it's like, you know, it's like taking their dream away from them a little bit. And it's like, it's all fun and games. And then when the opener becomes a headliner, everybody's kind of like, Oh, F that guy. So <laughs> well, what's crazy it, too is it's a weird thing at that time too. That was okay. We, I, we had a conversation about this on another podcast where it was cra- it, it was actually okay to see Texas. The reason play with a hardcore band um, yes. or, you know, dashboard play with movie like, do you, I, maybe it's happening and I'm completely obliv- uh, oblivious, deaf and old, but I don't that was okay then. Yeah, it there really was like an acceptable hodgepodge and I think that I think that it was okay in that time because things hadn't really like I call it like going over the swing set, like it really hadn't exploded completely yet. Like you didn't have the great successes of like Fallout Boy and things like that to really like open up the world to hot topics. So you could have a show that was like, you know, it. <laughs> I don't even know if it's still around, but like you could have a ska band playing with a hardcore band. I was going to say, when you said like, that earlier, I was going to say that's actually okay. Yeah, no, kids didn't care. And, you know, I think the world has changed a lot. And I think it's like back then going to shows was something to do. And there wasn't a lot to do. Like... Video games weren't where they are now, and the internet wasn't where it is now, and, like, it was still kind of, like, the 90s, the late 90s was, like, a weird place in time, like, there was a huge, like, straight-edge movement still going strong, and it was, like, okay, like, I have this feeling that I shouldn't do drugs, but, you know, I don't want people to tell me what to do, and, like, straight-edge kids go to shows, maybe I should go to shows, like, there was just this, like, weird thing in the air that it just worked, like, you could have, you know, a three-band bill and them all being completely different, whereas I think now kids want more of the same because I don't really even think they know that there's a lot of different things out there. No, I I, I was – it brings up such an interesting point, and I want to maybe expand on it because, yeah, it's it was okay for us to see those shows, and I didn't care if it was an acoustic guy and then yeah. it was Shy Halud or whatever it was. It didn't – and Newfound yeah. Glory. It didn't matter because the, it, I was there. There was a scene. They were all connected. They all – you know, intermixed, and I think that's sort of, you know, with radio, and it was against MTV, because MTV was playing all the same garbage, it was like, I don't want to just see one thing, and I think yeah. kids now are like, well, I'm going to listen to just Faction on Sirius XM, or whatever they yeah. want to listen to, I'm just going to listen to this channel, um, because I honestly feel like if kids weren't forced into that, they actually like different genres, but no one caters to it. I think yeah. they're scared to do a tour like that. Yeah, it's um I I feel a bit detached like um like I have a new record label for fun. I love doing it. I you know, I have a day job and then the record label is the It's night called and Jackie Darling, job. right? Oh no, it was called Jackie Darling and then I don't know, I decided I didn't want it to be called Jackie Darling anymore. So I changed it. It's called Animal Manufacturing Company. Oh yes, cuz it forwarded to it. Okay, go Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. So it was Jackie Darling for the first, like, two years. And, you know, the beauty of having your own label is you, and, like, not having it be, like, a giant 
corporation with people that get mad at you when you do things like this. Like, I just changed the name. Like, totally fine, no big deal, all the bands are cool with it. But um, one of the bands I work with, they're called Ash Tree, and they're, they're way younger. They're 10 years younger than me. And they were put on a hardcore show in Colorado, which is where they're from. And they're like, yeah, it's crazy. We're playing this, like, hardcore fest. And they are not a hardcore band. They are a piano pop, you know, rock band. And I'm like, and I'm like, that's awesome. And they're like, I don't know. We're kind of scared. We're going to get beat up or get stuff thrown at us. And it's like, first of all, that's the way it used to be. Second of all, this is good. Like, you, this is so good for you. Like, I'm so happy you're doing this. And, you know, I they called me after the show and I saw pictures from the show. And it forced them to, like, play harder and be more involved with any show that they've ever been because it was like these kids that are coming to see these other bands aren't going to like us and you have to play like your life depends on it and it it's totally true like it it works playing outside of your genre like makes you a tougher band yeah completely and, and, totally. and that kind of goes back to with like chris i mean it really it set him up and i think there were a lot of people that connected to him because of that and you know yeah. you, you played the show but your girlfriend came and likes dashboard more Yes, totally. It was like, at first it was like, my boyfriend is coming to see H2O and I'm a girl, so I'm going to see Dashboard Professional. And it was like, okay, and then the tough guys crossed over. It was like, okay, this is so crazy. <laughs> of course, I was the opposite. I was the person getting girls No, it's so, I, no I love I, it. I, I, I was so like, oh my God. <laughs> so <laughs> stupid. Um, no, it's great. It's totally great. Um, I think, I mean... I bet after that time with, you know, you had Vagrant, you went to L.A., um, I lasted a year in L.A., um, what was, you know, I think you said, you know, that you wanted to finish your, you know, career and things obviously changed with, you know, um, uh, MCA into Geffen, you got a full staff. Yeah. That, I, I mean, mean, that's crazy. Like, 2001 to 2005 was, like, nuts for me. I uh, I was working at Vagrant and then I wasn't working at Vagrant <laughs> and uh, I had this like period where I was like, well, I guess I'll, okay. So I went to college after high school and then I put out the newfound glory record right at the end of high school. So as newfound glory was getting bigger, I was getting deeper into school. And after my sophomore year, it was like, okay, I either need to do this label thing or I need to do this college thing. Cause I can't do them both. Um, I was working like three jobs at the time. I wasn't sleeping. And uh, and it wasn't until, you know, I, I went on tour with Newfound Glory on a, a school break. And then when Saves the Day was like, we want you to come with us, I was like, all right, I'm done with school for now. And then after working at Vagrant and seeing that whole side of the music industry, it was like, okay, well, maybe I'll go back to school. And I found this, like, it's totally like, you know, most amazing school I've ever been to. I mean, I haven't been to that many schools, but it's a wonderful experience. I went to a school called Art Center in Pasadena. And uh, while I was at Art Center, I was still going to shows. I still had my label and I met a band called Recover. And I instantly fell in love with them. Like total, like, this is amazing. I love your band. I love you guys. Let's be BFF forever. And um, they're, they're thanks. Yeah. And I put out an EP for them, and it just it took off once again. And I think at this time, because Newfound Glory was like a legitimate like major label success, and 
dashboard was on its way to being like a huge independent label success. And uh, I think all eyes were kind of on me with Recover. And when it worked, I was being like wooed every which way with different distributors, with people that wanted to buy the label, people that wanted to buy me. And I was like, I don't, I had no idea what I was doing. There, there were a couple of people that went through the same thing that I did. And we can all kind of relate that, you know, same boat, different ocean, like what the hell is going on? And, uh, I made a decision to do a distribution deal with MCA and I dropped out of school, you know, the second time. And that was, um, that was really when like the label got like first real, like, Oh my gosh, I have an office and there's people working here. And like, you know, there's a distribution center in different parts of the country. And it was, uh, it was crazy. It was totally crazy. That's awesome. I mean, the just I I work at a major label, so um, after working at Indies, the it's like such yeah. a it's such a weird shift from six people in a room going, "Hey, so we're gonna do this, right? Okay," yeah. and then you do it, and then at another place, it's fifty-five meetings, and you might get it done, or you yeah. get it's. I mean, it's bigger things. It's different. You know, there's a lot more people involved, but. It's a different me. It's a different machine, and oh my god, that must have been that must have been crazy. You're like, what happened? <laughs> I, I I honestly to this day I'm still trying to figure it all out. Um, it just uh, I had the unfortunate experience of like every distributor that I signed with just fell apart the second the pen touched the paper. Oh, because so, MCA fell into Geffen. MCA folded and turned into Geffen, and. Geffen really wanted nothing to do with me. Like, I was like a stepchild, and it, literally, like, my first interaction with Geffen was like, we're terminating your contract. And it was like, wait, what? Like, A, why would you do that? And B, I don't think you can do that. So, you know, I was the, the stepchild at Geffen for a little bit too long. I definitely should have walked from that deal. And uh, from there, I went to Red and there were a couple of people at Red that I really had a lot of faith in that really believed in the company. And as soon as I went to Red, they left the company. And it was like, wait, where'd those guys go? But they were the nice guys. And like, you know, you thought I would have learned my lesson, but I really didn't. And uh, it was just the, the label, once it became like a legitimate business and like a machine that supported people and like putting out a couple records a year, it just really never like, it really never formulated into like a permanent stable thing. We were either always going from one bad distributor to another one or something didn't work out or it was just a, it was a rough, like the highs were high and the lows were way too low. And uh, it was, it was like an interesting time to like be involved in that in like my early twenties. I mean, so. you, you definitely learned everything up until 2005. Jeez. I yeah. Mean, from... No. And it, like, to be a part of that structure when labels like small and major were falling apart and when people really didn't know what downloading meant, like, Napster had happened and it was what it was and people were okay with it. And then there came, like, the digital boom of, like, what is this iTunes thing and how are we going to get paid and I don't really know. Like, or why is there this nerd in this one room and we need more of you? Like, yes. I, I worked at another label that... I was it was I was one of two people in the digital marketing department, one of two people, and that's crazy. We it, we did everything, 
And it was fascinating to think that now I'm in a department of 12 to 15 people, even more probably, of doing that. And it's just it was it's so slow to be like oh no 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 it's fine everyone's still buying records you know yeah no <laughs> so, no they're not like, no they're not <laughs> yeah it's it was just such a like such a rough time to be like in the music business like I don't know you know I when I went to college I call it college part one because I started at the University of Miami I was a film major and. I was there right when digital film, digital video started happening. And it was like, there's this new thing called Avid. You guys need to start over. Like, everything is digital. And it was like, wait, I wanted to be in this cool film industry and have 16 millimeter shorts and, like, all these things and just fell apart. And that's when I walked away from film school. And I feel like I got to the music business and it was like, everything's great. Everybody's having a party. Wait a second. What is this digital thing? that's happening to us and what, what is this online thing? And, you know, I just felt like I was a part of like a seriously crumbling industry that like, you know, at that point you work with your friends because you all do everything for each other. And at that point it was like, I can't afford to not only pay myself. I was like literally starving at the end. And, uh, it was like, I can't keep dragging my friends into this. Like, they're starving. I'm starving. This is just dumb. Like it's time to walk away. Yeah, I mean, I I started in 2000, so from in the middle of 2005. I mean, yeah, it was such a interesting time with, you know, comings and goings. And thankfully, I was at a small label where I kind of missed a lot of that. But yeah, it was definitely so much turmoil. God, there still is. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I. It's, it's hard, you know. I have friends that are still, you know, touring and. You know, I I just saw Chris play a solo show. I saw Dashboard Confessional the other day, and it's like, you know, just the question is like, I think once you, once everybody went through that period, it's like, well, when's it gonna stop? Like, there is no longer the like, I can do this forever, and this is amazing. It's like, well, when when does the the music stop? Yeah. Um, so it's it's tough. Yeah, it's definitely a tough time. I mean, the what was the? Um, I'm glad you're in New York. It's the best place. Um, yeah. When did the when did the move come for that? And with death and taxes, and uh, you know, obviously, magazine world versus record label world. Um, that was a very interesting career move for me, if I might say so myself. Plastic um, to paper. Yeah, really. Um, so. The label wasn't working. I had to make the tough choice to like close the doors and through friends I met a publishing company and they were very much interested in starting a pop culture magazine. And at that point it was like either work at a major label, like I still had some friends in LA that were like, You can come work for us, like it'll be okay, buddy. Um and I just didn't want to do that. I just like I felt like music had like broke my heart and I didn't even want to like be around it in that capacity anymore. So I started death and taxes and I brought some really awesome people in and I did that for about a year and it was really good. It like, I got to interview and work with a lot of bands that I had like known through the years through Fiddler and through touring and whatnot. And it was like, it kind of was like a nice goodbye for me to the music industry because, you know, I could sit and talk to people about like 
you know, I could talk to Thursday about what the hell happened and like, oh my gosh, we made that video and it all exploded and we don't even know why. And, and I could really kind of reminisce about it and then put it to bed because the way things ended with the label, like there, there wasn't a lot of closure. It was like, okay, I guess I don't have a job anymore. Like, wow, it really? It just stopped. It literally just stopped. And it stopped when I decided it, which is like the saddest part is like, you, you know, I had to make that call. You pulled the plug. Um, I had to pull the plug. Yeah. And uh, so with death and taxes, I felt like a really good sense of like, I don't even know what, like I just felt good about the world in general. And it was partly based in New York and partly based in LA. So I was going back and forth and after about a year of it, though, I realized that the parts of the magazine that I enjoyed the most were not, it was not the publishing part. Like, I loved working with the photographers. I loved titling the articles. I loved putting it all together. And at that point, it was like, okay, I'm in my, like, late 20s. If I'm going to finish college, this is it. Like, I don't want to go back to school when I'm 35 and I have a kid, you know, that sort of thing. So I parted ways with death and taxes and went back to college for the third time back to <laughs> art center. And, uh, I went for advertising, which was like, it was like the Renaissance for me. I loved it. Like I had never gotten to really like play in an artistic field because from such a young age, I was like doing things for professional reasons. Like I learned Photoshop to put together new found glories layout. Like that was it. So to go to like, you know, an amazing art school and learn, you know, design theory and color theory and like I met a lot of great people and when I finally graduated in 2009, I had a portfolio and uh, I shopped it. I went to like, there's this thing in advertising called the One Show, which is like the creme de la creme and they do a, uh, they do a portfolio review every couple months in New York and uh I came out here with my two best friends, uh, John and Jacqueline, and I, I met a recruiter from an agency called J. Walter Thompson, which is like the oldest ad agency in the world. And uh, they saw my portfolio and liked it, and I literally moved to New York like four weeks later. Like, it's super weird because I, I am one of the few people that will wave the L.A. flag and be like, I love L.A. Like, L.A. chewed me up and spit me out, and I don't even care. Like, I loved it. I love California. I just, I will always have a place in my heart for California. And, like, when it was a job offer from New York, it was like, uh, I don't really know. Like, yeah. they have to sell my car and all of my stuff. Like, and my first year in New York was pretty rough, not going to lie. I think, I think that's, everybody year. does that. Yeah, you, you just, you just, that's the part of the fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really, like, New York beats the crap out of you, like, unlike any other city. And uh, it took me about a year and figuring out, like, what neighborhood you live in and, yep. like, who are your real friends. And now I love it. I totally love it here. I'm I'm proud to say I'm a New York kid these days. I've actually, uh, as two weeks ago, my girlfriend was very proud of me. I had my California license still, and oh wow! And my girlfriend's like, "Will you just get a damn New York ID?" So I just got one. <laughs> really, I, I did just too. Got one. When last week? Um, I got it right before my birthday because it was going to expire, and then I would be in trouble. So it was like September 2011. I finally 
got a New York driver's license. Look at that. We're, we're doing the same things. I love it. We're on the same path. <laughs> we're on the same path. We, we, we want well, to hold on to Cali. Is, there's no reason to have one. There's no like, reason here. There's no reason. Yeah, like, you know, your shoes are your car here. You don't yep. really need a license. Um, I just need some really but, good Sauconies. That's it. That's all I need. Yeah, you just need some, <laughs> some cushy shoes and you're fine. But I didn't want it to expire, and I didn't want to, like, cheat the system and go back to California and get it there. Like, Did they like, take yours? They took mine. Uh, They didn't take mine. Oh, they took mine. They're like, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take your California. And I was like, it's fine. I took a photo of it. Oh, no, they, like, they hole-punched a side of it, and then ah, they let me keep it. Because Callie hole-punched my New York one when I moved out there the first time. Oh, look Weird. at you. you hook, I guess Harlem just takes it. That's the, the DMV in Harlem. Oh, yeah. Just no, takes I went it. to the one in, like, Midtown, oh, like, nice. right around Macy's. Oh, yeah. Zoo. Nice. Yeah. Um, well, I just think it's 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 so cool that I, as I was kind of researching and um, obviously – I've known about you for a while just from Fiddler and being in music, and um, I just think the common theme for each thing is you kept learning and teaching yourself new skills, and I think aligning those with, like, your music ideals and, like, you loving music, it, it I just really admire it because good things happen to good people, but they also happen to good people that work their butt off, and I think you worked your butt off. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I really do. I just see all these things and just, I was like, holy shit, like, oh, this didn't work. I'm going to learn this and then do this. And oh, this didn't, and that really, I think that's, that's really um, something that I really um, found like a common theme. And I just think that's super rad that um, you were able to keep doing it. And you still are. You yeah. know, you got into I'm advertising and, yeah, still kicking. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it kind of came down. Like, it started out of passion. You know, I just loved music. I loved going to shows. And and then it kind of turned into, like, survival. It was like, if this isn't working, I have to figure out something else that will. So yep. you just kind of, you learn to jump ship pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah, you learn and when like, to. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to learn. Um, and it's weird because when I graduated college, I was a lot older than, you know, my peers. And... I started in advertising at like a higher level than them and they'd be like, wait a minute, how does this work? And it's like, <laughs> dude, I love you, but I have 10 years of crap that you don't even know exists yet. <laughs> like not to like school you in the world of business, but like, um, no, it's just like, it's on a piece of paper that it says that I did these three things and that's why I'm starting higher. It's nothing that's awesome. Personal. Yeah, it's nothing yeah. personal. It's, and you just be like, I'm sorry, I put out the first dashboard. It's cool. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, I actually like, I, I like to keep it quiet. It's just kind of weird. I love um, that there was a password, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you. <laughs> I do that because like, there are people out there that like, they see music stuff and they hear about bands and they get like this little tiny kind of like, you know, twinkle in their eye, like, Oh, this person can do cool things for me. And it's like, I just don't want that in my life anymore. So it was really hard to explain to a lot of advertising people like what I did. So I did create like a password protected Tumblr with like explanations and photos and like, I just I just like to keep it like, you know, this is something I did and this is what I do now. Totally, you know? yeah. No, and I think that lines into, you know, what's um, – is there, you know, anything like uh, coming ahead? Like what's next for you? Is there thoughts on the scene? And, um, you know, obviously you said you don't go to as many shows and um, 
you know, I think that's smart um, for hearing and other reasons. Um, you know, <laughs> are there any like favorite bands? I know you mentioned Ash Tree, but is there any other stuff that like you're stoked on for next that I think people can look out for? Um, well, I wish like I knew something right off the top of my head and I could be like, yeah, I'm totally excited for this. <laughs> but, uh, you know, not to, you know, prop out my own stuff, but I'm very excited. Ashtree just recorded a full-length record, and uh, they're going to put it out themselves. I'm not even putting it out. They're doing it themselves, and I'm just, like, so proud of them, and that'll come out in 2012. Um, I'm getting a little bit, like, fuddy-duddy in my old age. Um, Like, I still love what I love. Like, I will always love everything that Recover and the dudes from Recover, everything that they do. Like, I put out you know, the B-sides from their Challenger record. And that was that just made me so happy because I love working with them. And there are mumblings about a new Recover record. I don't know if that'll happen. But, you know, I love those four guys. And I, I couldn't hope for anything more than that they do something together. Um, wow, I wish I knew. No, I, I think something. the fuddy-duddy thing works great because, I mean, that's why I do the DJ night because... I yeah. just I just listened to ninety six to two thousand two, so <laughs> it's really... Yeah, it's tough. Like I just got a Spotify account and I like I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna look at this like Netflix. Like I pay nine ninety nine a month for whatever yep. I wanna listen to. And like lately in my office, like I work in this huge open office, like it's everybody has creative stations. We don't have like cubicles or anything. So you have to wear headphones all day or you feel crazy. And like all I've been listening to is American Nightmare, and they just played. And you missed that? Reun- I didn't go. I mean, even with Ryan I- Gosling there. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know Ryan Gosling went. Um, I I love Wes. I love those songs, but it was just like, I just didn't go. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if I'm having this like weird. No, you're totally fine. No, you're crisis. You're gonna- no, you're fine. There, there's some bands that have like came, you know, came back. I mean, actually, Saturday Lifetime played, and I was like, I'm good. Yes. Okay. I'm, so I'm good. I was I like, have, I don't need to go. I'm good. No, my oh, I have this great friend who lives in Brooklyn. His name is Chris, and he. Okay, so there's this new movement of younger kids. Chris isn't that young. He's in his early 20s, but he's in a hardcore youth crew straight edge band called Go Deep. You should totally check out Go Deep. They're amazing. But uh, Chris is like. On New Year's Eve, we were talking. He's like, oh, my God, I'm totally going to see Lifetime. And I was like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> and he's like, what? And I was like, you know, I've already been to three of those shows, and yeah. three of them were Lifetime. And, like, I just – I've seen it. And, like, I love that Chris has the energy and the enthusiasm, and I love that people still go. And, like, I saw the photos from the American Nightmare show, and, like, they the just made me so – happy yeah Was yeah to- no all the head walking there was a lot of head yeah all there. of the head walking like all of the <laughs> things that feel like they've been gone for like seven to ten years are coming back yeah and well, that's like- that's the funny thing about the washed up emo too is that there's all these newer bands that have reached out to me that have said oh i've grew up listening to american football and mineral and, wow and they like there's this band gates from new jersey GatesNJ.com is their site they're amazing and they're like, you know, they just, it's like we opened up the CD in 1998. Um, yeah. And yeah. so there's this definite resurgence. And it actually is really exciting to see that if, if it really did mean something and it didn't get ruined and 
its bands are now remembering it. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's it seems like there is like a new breed coming up. The weird thing is that you know when we were younger and coming up, like everything mattered like what label you put your record out on and like what bands you toured with it was like collecting baseball cards and these days like you can you know get a tune core account for 50 bucks and like the world is your oyster there you go your record is out like i mean i put my records out through tune core i think they're an amazing service and like it's just it's mind-blowing to think that you can do it's like there's a new world of DIY. Like you can put it out yourself and it's not like the old DIY, put it out yourself. Like I don't, I can't really articulate, but I think that, you know, it's kind of like maybe we're getting into like post-apocalyptic, like all of the big things have crashed and, you know, everything's going back to zero. Yes. I, I, really I know. no, I 100% agree because I don't need Amy to do my record. I don't need to, nope. you know, the vacant Andy's would have done it on their own. Yeah. Totally. Um, and it, who knows what would happen, but it, it's it's out there and people are able to ingest it. More people are listening to music than ever. I mean, you mentioned Spotify. I'm a huge proponent of Spotify. I think it's, it is the future. You're paying for access. You're not paying for one record. I want, yeah. I'm paying $10 for every record that's ever come out. Um, and what's actually funny is I'm working, um, I'm bugging Spotify because, um, and figuring out how to get mineral on Spotify because it's not oh there. Gosh. And I'm actually working with the guys from Crank to try to get this figured out. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Oh my God. Because it's not on there. It's so amazing. <laughs> um, I have a, I have a, I have a playlist that I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link for. But I put like 13 hours of emo music on Spotify. So. You can, like, oh my gosh, my go-to so... breakup records were Mineral. Yep. And Jawbreaker. It yes. Dear you and the power of failing. Yep. Like that. That was like, oh my god, nobody loves me. I'm gonna die. Like <laughs> that was that was the best. Um, That's so. No, but the, the weird thing about younger kids and everything changing is the band I work with Ashtree like I found them they emailed me on like MySpace and it was like hey we put out an EP do you like it and it was like yeah and we became buddies and there's there's been no like I need you guys to sign for five records and give me everything and like the whole structure of what used to be is gone like I I'm not their manager I'm not their label like, I'm just, like, a buddy in the process. Like, they're like, we're going to put out the record ourselves, but we need help, like, figuring out what to do and where to record. And, and it was like, sure. Like, I think once you take away the giant, like, this is going to make millions, I think people have kind of come back to their senses. Uh, like you, you, I don't think you could, you could have said it better. It's that exact point of, you know what? It's okay. Like that whole thing of like, we're gonna get in a bus and we're gonna go on warp tour and fucking yep, take over gone. the world. It's all gone. Yeah, <laughs> because even like the bands that do have a bus and are on warp tour, it, it's gone for them too. Like yeah. everything has changed, and like once you take away the like the big what if, and it's like we just want to do this because we want to do this. We work at Starbucks. We're best friends. We just want to put out this record to do it. And isn't that's that where like, the good music came from? Isn't that what happened previously? It's where previously? it all came from. Yeah. It's totally where it came from. So, like, I'm optimistic that there are going to be some great things in the next five years that 
hopefully you and I will hear about because we're on the upper level of the senior citizens, but yes, I think seriously. it's going to happen. Well, I yeah. hope I hope there's a resurgence of um, more star tattoos, jinkos, oh and only selling extra larges. Why didn't someone <laughs> tell us? God. I, I think my mom tried to tell me, and I think that's why we were like – we were at odds for most of that phase of my life. Like it was like, you know, you should really kind of maybe wear a small. And it was like, no, you don't understand mom. Like, yeah. My first show, I bought a double XL long sleeve. Oh my God. What the hell was I thinking? Like I used to have XL long sleeves and I still remember them. One was a no effects shirt and one was a mighty, mighty Boston shirt. Solid. I lived in Florida and I wore long sleeve shirts with long pants in the middle of summer because it was like, this is cool, man. This is so cool. I'm sweating my ass off right now, but it's cool. Totally. Awesome. Totally, totally. Well, Amy, uh, thank you so much um, for doing this. Thanks for having me. This has this been a blast. Sure.